you are about to hear my first sermon at Springs Community Church. I promise you clapped too soon. And I admit, I am both incredibly excited and very nervous uh, for it. Uh, that's part of my personality. I still get nervous every night when I go home and see my beautiful bride. I walk in and she takes my breath away. So I'm just a nervous personality to begin with. Here's the thing about a first sermon. Depending on how it goes, it can also become my last sermon. <laughs> so we're all about to find out together uh, which it's going to be. As you know, we are in the midst of a series that is exploring various questions Jesus asked. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus uses various ways of teaching. He's he's most known for using parables. In a parable, Jesus will take the the truth of Scripture, the truth of his kingdom, and will bury it under layers of story. He's also very fond of using questions. He uses his questions to to prompt us, to trigger us, to help lead uh, to a transformed life. Uh, We're going to be studying a a bit of scripture from Matthew chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount happens. And it's, I think, the most seminal message of of Christ's earthly ministry. So I'm really excited for it. But before we jump into it, let me open a prayer for us. Father God, I, I stand up here and I look out and I see a congregation of beautiful hearts and beautiful souls filled with joy and brokenness who come here to celebrate and to worship, but also come here in need. And God, I am so aware that I have nothing to offer in this moment. I am a broken man. So Spirit, we pray that you would indwell this place, that we would hear from you, Lord, that despite my limitations um, as as a human, as a preacher, God, you would still connect with our hearts. So you could say, come Lord Jesus. We're excited to hear from you now. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if you all have noticed, uh, but we just happened to have an election that was slightly controversial. Yes? Uh, there were people celebrating in the streets, uh, those who were ready to jump out a window, and many who were bewildered, uh, unsure of what had just happened after a very long and heated campaign season. The days that followed the election were filled with people protesting in the streets, voicing a real sense of despair. There was a climate of uncertainty that wondered what the proper response would be and what the pathway to healing would and should look like. And then Ernie Johnson, uh, who is a sportscaster for Turner Sports and CBS Sports, spoke out on a live broadcast for an NBA basketball game of all places back in November. And he didn't hold back. He spoke honestly. He, He spoke from his heart as he tried to make sense of what was happening in our culture. And he says this, I want to read it to you. When this campaign season started, I felt like I'd been dealt a bad hand. Had these couple of choices, and there were trust issues that I couldn't get past. And there was the inflammatory rhetoric, which to me was incomprehensible and indefensible. I felt like I couldn't vote for either candidate. But here's the deal, he continues. I just hope that our new president is all in in fixing the wounds in this country and the divides that separate this country. And I want to be a part of that too. And for me to be part of it, I have to look in the mirror and I have to say, how am I going to be a better man? How am I going to be a better neighbor? How am I going to be a better citizen? 
How am I going to be a better American? How can I be a fountain and not a drain? Now he says, I know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion, but we're already talking about politics. I'm going to go the R direction too. I never know from one election to next who's going to be in the Oval Office, but I always know who's on the throne. And I'm on this earth because God created me, and that's who I answer to. I'm a Christian. I follow a guy named Jesus. You might have heard of him. And the greatest commandment he gave me was to love others. And scripture also tells us to pray for our leaders, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to pray for all those people right now who are marching in the street, who feel like they're on the outside looking in, who are afraid at this point. I'll pray for them too. In short, I'm praying for America, and I'm praying that one day we're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what? That Donald Trump presidency, that was all right, but I am praying. For Ernie, he made sense of turmoil by turning to his Christian faith. This is a sermon. It's not a political uh, talk, uh, but politics have an ability, if we allow them to, uh, of bringing a micro-focus to the deep recesses of our hearts and minds, revealing what really compels us in life, what our true worldview is. The thoughts and feelings that are stirred up when politics come out provide a window into our soul. And I think it takes courage. I think it takes courage to peer into that window to look into the recesses of our hearts and to ask big questions. What's there? What should be there? Like I said, this is my first, second now, sermon at Springs Community Church. You're probably not sure if you should trust me yet. That's fair. I'm still getting to know you, and you're still getting to know me. But I want to say as a, as a side note from my heart that I'm crazy about you. I've loved my first few months here. I think you really and truly are a beautiful people. I think you are called to this church for an incredibly exciting time in our church's history, in our city's history. I think you're all pretty neat. And I'm not sure where Kelvin Langford's at, but I even like Kelvin Langford. He even works for me. <laughs> uh, today, our passage and the questions Jesus asks in it are going to require trust if we're going to honestly explore it. This isn't a Bible study for the sake of acquiring biblical knowledge. It's an examination, an examination of one of the most important parts of what is perhaps Jesus' most important sermon, the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5, Matthew. The world that Ernie Johnson was speaking into, a world that was splintered, a world where the fissures of religion and politics threaten the fabric of culture and society, undermining the stability that we all hope for, mirrors the reality of the world Jesus was born into. Jesus came as the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. The hope was for him to come as a conquering hero, to be a strong king who was going to rescue the Jews from Roman oppression. The expectation was for a muscular, sword-wielding Messiah who would restore Jewish power, leading them in conquest, and restoring the rightful place of cultural dominance. He was supposed to love them, and he was supposed to hate the same things and the same people that they hated. But he came with a completely different message. It was still one of, of kingship and kingdom, but it was an 
upside-down kingdom, one where power was distributed amongst the least of these, as Eric talked about in his prayer, where it was reserved for those who would serve, those who would lay down their lives for one another, one where hope and dignity were bestowed to the people who lived at the margins of society. Now, there was no ancient context for the message Jesus was preaching. It was something new. It was something the world had never seen before. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus uh, captures well just how upside down the kingdom of God is and just how confusing that can seem to unbelievers. In an attack on followers of Christ, he writes, those who summon people to the other mysteries, the other religions, make this preliminary proclamation, whoever has pure hands and a wise tongue, that's who we want. And again, others say, whoever is pure from all defilement and whose souls know nothing of evil and who has lived well and righteously, that's who we want. Such are the preliminary exhortations of those who promise purification from sins. That is, the most religious, the most righteous, the most who are accustomed to power. And he goes on. But let's hear what folks, these Christians call who do the Jesus people say thereafter? They say this, Whosoever is a sinner, whoever is unwise, whoever is a child, and in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him and her. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a burglar, a prisoner, a sacrilegious fellow, and a grave robber? What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? For Celsus, like many in our day, the message of a kingdom built by and for sinners makes zero sense. I'm a pastor, and it still makes no sense to me why this is the kingdom God would build, except for it's an overflow of his love. Ancient religion was predicated on reinforcing power for the privileged, the message of Jesus, the one that his early followers adopted, was a subversion of all preceding cultures. It was something new, something the world had never seen before. So, when Jesus came in Matthew 5, preaching this new message, it was to establish this kingdom of life that we talk about all the time here at our church. Pastor Eric, I'm not sure where he's at, but he and I have talked about this. And both agree that the Sermon on the Mount really serves to underpin the ethics of the kingdom life that our, that our church really lives well. In it, we get the Beatitudes. And you know them. Most, some of you know them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We get the admonition to be salt and light to the world. People who let their light, their love, their belief in God shine before all others for the glory of God. And we're given this great series of sayings where Jesus says, For you have heard it said X, but I say Y. You have heard it said not to murder, but I say anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subjected to judgment. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks, merely looks at a woman lustfully 
has already committed adultery in his heart. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to turn the other cheek when someone offends you. Jesus elevates the meek and powerless with the Beatitudes and challenges people to move beyond outward behavior as the measure of righteousness, telling them that the life of the mind and the life of the heart really do matter. He also challenges them to give up their right to retribution and calls them and us right now to a life of servanthood. Now, before moving on in his sermon to give instruction on religious life, Jesus ties all of the preceding verses uh, together in one final point that embodies the idea of a kingdom ethic. And that takes us to our passage uh, this morning. You can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You can follow along up here, or you can just listen to me read it over you. Starting in verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heaven, of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people who look like you, who talk like you, who act like you, who enjoy the same foods as you and the same customs as you. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, I spent a ridiculous amount of time studying it this past past week and a half. I think I could write an entire book on every single verse. But if we look closely, there are a couple ideas that I want to call out for our purposes. The first is this. Jesus is challenging culture in this passage. The value to love your neighbor and hate your enemy was not necessarily a Hebrew or Jewish value. It was borrowed from Greek and Roman culture, where power was hungered for. The prevailing cultural value was to seek power, to wield it against your enemies, to subjugate them and crush their culture. There was no embracing the weak. There was no forgiveness for enemies. There was only domination. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Love that is reciprocated is easy love to give. But when it's not reciprocated, what are we to do? Now, some of you probably remember the story. It's one of the more tragic days in our recent American history. But on the morning of October 2nd, 2006, a troubled milkman named Charles Carl Roberts barricaded himself inside the West Nickel Mine Amish School, ultimately murdering five young girls and wounding six others. Roberts committed suicide when police arrived on the scene. It was a dark day for the Amish community of West Nickel Mine, but it was also a dark day for Mary Roberts. She was the wife of the gunman and her two children. On the following Saturday, Mary experienced something truly countercultural while attending her husband's funeral something she should not have experienced, something that our culture should not permit, something that's not natural to us as humans. That day, she and her children watched as Amish families, about half of the 75 mourners who were present that morning, came and stood alongside them in the midst of their own blinding grief. 
Despite the crime the man had perpetrated, the Amish came to mourn. They came to mourn Charles Carr Roberts, the man who caused him such tremendous pain, a husband and a daddy. Now, there's a firefighter there, um, a chaplain for the fire, fire department named Bruce Porter, and he, he describes a scene like this. It's the love, the forgiveness, the heartfelt forgiveness they had toward the family. I broke down and cried seeing it displayed. He had that Mary Roberts was also touched. She was absolutely deeply moved by the show of love. What obligation did the Amish community have to show that family any type of love, any type of support, any type of forgiveness? They were under no obligation, not culturally, not legally, not religiously. But they practiced a deep faith, a faith that recognized what Jesus is directing us to in this passage, a faith that, that went beyond natural forgiveness and offered love uh, to someone who hurt them so, so deeply. The second observation is this, a recognition that God really is the God of all people. He's not just our God. He's not just the Jewish God. He's not just the God of the, the, the church down the street. He's the God of all creation. The second part of verse 45 says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a remarkable verse. It communicates care and provision. If you were a God of opposition, wouldn't you withhold the sun? Wouldn't you withhold the rain? Wouldn't you force famine on all these people you despised and hated? You'd work for their demise and destroy them. But Jesus paints a different picture. He says that God meets the needs even of those who are evil. It's not an ordinary kingdom. It truly is an upside-down kingdom that we're a part of. It's counterintuitive, and it does not make sense to our sensibilities. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God is classless. It's raceless. It's genderless. It's one of equality. It's one of provision because that is the heart of God for everything that he has made. And the third observation is this. It is a recipe for how to practice the ethics of the kingdom. In verse 44, it says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is not optional. It is a command as much as it is a mark of the kingdom life. 1 John 4, 16-21 says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. The people of Springs Community Church are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God 
must also love their brother and sister. Perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love is perfected when it recognizes the origin of love is the love that God showers on us. Will King tells a story that I think captures this love really well. Let me read it to you. The first time the town of Turbigen, Germany, expelled all of its Jewish residents was in 1477, long before World War II. It soon became a place where anti-Jewish doctrines thrived, especially during World War II. Today, however, the Jerusalem Post reports that not only has a tiny Jewish community returned to the town, but there also exists the Turbigen Offensive Stant Mission Church, or the TOS, much easier for me to say TOS. The church has grown to about 250 members over the last 20 years. That's not what we call explosive church growth in, in our metrics, but it's a small church growing in this place where it should not have been able to grow. And each of its members possesses a heartfelt love for both the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. The church meets in a large tent built on top of the same railroad tracks that once deported Jews from Turbingen to concentration camps throughout Germany and Poland. The mission of the church is to confess and repent of the sins of their forefathers. In 2007, TOS organized a march of life to coincide with Holocaust Remembrance Day. Their march, which covered the roughly 350 kilometers from Bissingen to Dachau, followed the route many Jews walked as a death march in early 1945, just months before World War II ended. TOS held a special meeting the night before the march began. Four members stood before the assembly and told stories of their own families participation in the Nazi regime. These are stories of shame. Uh, these are stories of hatred. These are stories that we should want to bury, but they're standing before the body telling their truth. One woman, who now sings in the church worship group, had recently discovered that her grandfather was an SS guard who beat Jews and other prisoners, not someone to be proud of. She and three others then followed the examples of Jesus by humbly washing the feet of several Jewish guests, including some who were Holocaust survivors. This granddaughter of an SS guard now washing the feet of Holocaust survivors. The Jewish guests then symbolized their forgiveness by washing the feet of the German hosts. Rose Price, a survivor of six concentration camps, embraced and comforted several Germans who had broken into tears. One TOS leader, Stephen Ahrens, said the march had achieved its goal of confronting memories of the past and talking about them, breaking the veil of silence. A man from Syria witnessed the event and observed longingly that if Germans and Jews could somehow be reconciled, the same model might also be applied between Arabs and Jews. Now we're going to uh, watch a, a video here in a second. I want to set it up for you. Um, when it starts playing, you will be tempted to watch it with your mind. Um, if you're a conservative, the video might feel a little too liberal for you. Uh, it might smack a little bit of socialism. And if you're progressive politically, it might feel too conservative as it touches on briefly on the role of um, the military in helping to address world problems. 
If you allow your mind over these next three minutes to, to dominate, I'm really afraid you're going to miss something. But if you allow your heart to view this video, I think you're going to hear from the voice of God. I want you to listen with your heart, not a cheap heart, but a heart that has eyes for the kingdom of God. You're going to have to trust me on this one. So here's what it's about. In 1940, Charlie Chaplin wrote, directed, produced, and scored the political satire comedy drama named The Great Dictator. It was his first foray into movies with sound, as he was one of the last holdouts in Hollywood uh, who would still make silent films. Chaplin in the movie plays a Jewish barber who escapes, escapes a prison camp by dressing like the dictator. After escaping, he finds himself on the front lines where the dictator is expected to give a speech. Something his character has never done before. He's obviously nervous. I can relate to that. He is forced forward and makes an impassioned plea for brotherhood and goodwill, challenging everything that underpins the Nazi vision of a hierarchy and ordering of the value of men and women. Our, our clip's going to take uh, that original movie from 1940 and overlay it with recent images uh, from our world. It's meant to challenge brokenness, and it's meant to offer uh, a bit of hope and peace and love. I think it's a prophetic work. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. 
Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! If you don't clap for that, I'm walking off the stage. <laughs> you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Said another way, love your neighbor and hate injustice. Love your neighbor and hate persecution. Love your neighbor, even those who are the least lovable, and hate the fracturing of this world. Hate can either be used to destroy or to animate righteous action. In an article titled All the Rage, Angela observes that anger is a prominent emotion in American life. Our politics is dominated by angry rhetoric. Cases of road rage are increasingly common. The shelves of bookstores are full of books explaining both the benefits and the dangers of anger. In fact, many of the books are simply wrath-lit, wrath literature, published written rants on various topics. Peter Wood, in his book, A Bee in the Mouth, writes that a sure sign of America's problem with anger is the tone of its politics. Are we proud of the tone of our politics right now? For the first time in our political history, Declaring absolute guttural hatred for one's opponent has become a sign not of sad excess, but of good character. As prevalent as, as prevalent as it is, anger is a bit mysterious. It can be either one's greatest liability or one's greatest asset. Carol Tavris, author of Anger, the Misunderstood Emotion, explains, I have watched people use anger in the name of emotional liberation, to erode affection and trust, whittle away their spirits in bitterness and revenge, diminish their dignity in years of spiteful hatred. And I watch with adoration and admiration those who use anger to probe for truth, who challenge and change the complacent injustices of life. Love your neighbor and hate injustice. What did you feel watching that clip? Was your heart pricked? Could you stand? Could you bear to look at those images? Did you see yourself? Did you see your children? Your grandchildren? Did you see a world where the hope of the kingdom is being established? Or a place where we need forgiveness and love and mercy? If you were here last week, Eric had a, a central metaphor that he used in his sermon where he talked about the table as being this, 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 this thing 
that God set before us as an invitation to full life. He said it's a table that doesn't have little bits and vittles on it. It's a feast. He used the analogy of, of a Thanksgiving dinner. There's turkey, and there's ham, and there's salmon, and there are rolls, and there's potatoes and gravy, and there's every pie you can imagine. And he says, Jesus says to us, come to this table and feast. This is for you. We just got to celebrate communion. This is a table of feasting. This is a table we come to. We'll receive hope and grace and love and mercy. It's a table that from the beginning of time, Christ and the Father and the Spirit have wanted to invite us to. And he sets it before us, and he puts a chair out, and he says, come, come and feast, come and eat. And we get to do it. We get to have our fill. But it's not meant to be a place of gluttony. And very quickly, we'll notice that we're alone at this table. And that our challenge, if we really understand the kingdom of God that's being preached before us, is we make invitations. We invite others. We say, come, this table is, is, is for you. And we feel look like us, but people who are different than us. This is a table of invitation into the goodness and richness of God's love and mercy. I said at the beginning, this is a really fun and exciting time to be part of Springs Community Church. There's a lot going on. I, I am so, I just have only known Eric for a few months now, Pastor Eric. But the passion I hear in him, the, the, the codified vision, the coalescing of all these different things that are hard to keep together, his vision for a five-fold ministry, it's happening in our midst. And a big piece of what we are going to be doing going forward is to become a people who love our neighbors. Not just our favorite neighbor, but all our neighbors. And not just the people who live physically next to us, but the people that we interact with on a daily basis. People we rub elbows with, people we work with, people our kids go to school with. To develop a vision where love trumps hate in such a way that we are continually inviting people to this table. It is a new thing that's happening. I think it becomes one of the seminal movements of our church. Epi Meyer writes, it is a mistake to be always turning back to recover the past. The law for Christian living is not backward, but forward. Not for experiences that lie behind, but for doing the will of God, which is always ahead and beckoning us to follow. Leave the things that are behind and reach forward to those that are before. For on each new height to which we attain, there are appropriate joys that befit the new experience. Don't fret because life joys are fled. There are more in front. Look up, press forward. The best is yet to come. The question is, what will you do? What will we do individually and collectively? This is not a, a sermon where I'm looking for, for mere intellectual assent. I don't simply want you to nod and agree that, yes, we should love our neighbors and we should love our enemies. That's not enough. This is a sermon, this is a text that requires practical application. 
Are we going to follow this new command of Jesus? What will it look like fleshed out in my life? This isn't a command to become more religious. It's truly an invitation into the mission of Jesus, which is the mission of the church. Let me conclude with this. Found among the papers of a young pastor in Zimbabwe, after he'd been martyred for his Christian faith, is the moving testimony of a man who knew the depth of his calling, who knew how to love in the face of hatred, who knew how to bring the kingdom to people who didn't want it. He says this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, promotions, position, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work till he stops. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. And what will your banner say? Will it say, I was a person of hegemony. I protected power, and I hated all the right things. Or let's say, I was a person of peace. I was a person of reconciliation. I was a person who surrendered my my right to myself to serve all people. Will it say that I feasted with delight at the table of grace and made every effort to welcome all people to my table? People with different politics than mine, with different sexual preferences than mine, People with different language and national borders and immigration statuses than mine. People with different color skin than mine and different native languages than mine. What will your banner say? Is the enemy welcome at your table?
You are part of a body of believers here at Springs Community Church. We are not some club to gather and have a little bit of fun on a Sunday. We are the church called by Christ. We are the great hope for a hurting world. We are the mission that's been put on fire by God's Spirit. My hope and prayer for you and for myself is that the mission of establishing God's kingdom on earth will start in my own heart, that it will be joined by others, that the love of God will become contagious, and that the acrimony that has become normative in our world will be subverted in favor of an eternal love that makes space for all people. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. You, the people of Springs Community Church, are not an ordinary collection of people. You are called out ones. You have a mission and a purpose that goes beyond these walls. Amen and amen. May it be true in our midst even now.